Throughout history, people have offered a variety of different explanations trying to make sense of Jesus. In Islam, for, ex for example, Jesus is the Messiah. He is one of the great prophets, but he is not the son of God come to be savior. Some Hindus, for instance, they also believe that Jesus was significant. He maybe was an incarnation or an avatar of one of the Hindu deities. 19th century German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche provides an example of a more negative view of Jesus. Because of Jesus's emphasis on humility, compassion, and self-sacrifice, Nietzsche saw Jesus as making weakness a virtue. And thus he saw Jesus as inhibiting humankind's good and natural bent and will to power, the human need to assert power. Jesus instead promoted what he saw as essentially a slavery morality, to enslave ourselves, and that is good. Similarly, 20th century Russian-American philosopher Ayn Rand, who was, she was also critical of Jesus. She was an atheist, as you may know, and an ardent proponent of um, hyper-individualism and capitalism. She found Jesus' altruism and teaching against self-interest in conflict with her philosophy, and thus the attainment of human prosperity, what she thought was essential for human prosperity. Essentially, she advocated selfishness as the highest virtue. 19th century philosopher Ralph Waldo Emerson reflects a more uh, positive view of Jesus, rejecting the belief that Jesus was God, but nonetheless, he thought Jesus was an exemplar moral teacher. These are just an example of different ways that people have tried to make sense of Jesus, answering the question, who is Jesus? And so too, in our passage today, we encounter different groups offering different explanations trying to make sense of Jesus. We get two um, cases here. First of all, we see uh, in verse 20 and 21, we see how Jesus' family responds, how they are making sense of Jesus. Verse 20, then Jesus went home and the crowds gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. The first group tries to make sense of Jesus by saying, he's gone mad. He's crazy. Let's go and seize him. Sort of like if one of your family mem members had a mental episode or a mental breakdown and you were to, against their will, take hold of them and, and put them in inpatient, uh, a mental hospital or something like that. Like we need to get a hold of Jesus. He's a harm to himself. We see the other response, the other way, the other uh, group of people that are trying to make sense of Jesus in verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. So whereas the first group makes sense of Jesus by saying he's insane, the other group says that he is possessed by demons and that he's actually casting out demons by the power of demons. Um, we see for the first time that up until this point, the Jewish leaders that have been opposing Jesus seem to have been from the surrounding area. Now, these ones come from Jerusalem, the scribes, that is, experts in the law, the theologians of the day, so to say, coming from Jerusalem, the center of the Jewish religion. Now, it's like an official uh, delegation has been sent out to oppose Jesus, 
And there's also, so that's an escalation in itself, but there's also an escalation, whereas before there were these questions, these accusatory questions leveled against Jesus. Why do his disciples not practice the Sabbath or wash their hands? Or why does he say he can forgive sins? Now it's like their official pronouncement of how they are explaining Jesus comes to bear. He is doing all these things by the power of Satan. And this was actually, and that's what Beelzebul means, for example, For example, that is a name for Satan. That's what they're saying there. And this was a common anti-Christian polemic that we see elsewhere. For example, the Babylonian Talmud, which is the Jewish writings of the time, uh, one of their rabbis said this, Yeshua, which is uh, Jesus, Yeshua of Nazareth was hanged on the day of preparation for the Passover. He was crucified at Passover. Why? Because he practiced sorcery and led the people astray. So that's how the Jewish people, by and large, understood Jesus. He was a sorcerer. Or origin of Alexander, Alexandria, I mean, when he was writing against a Greek philosopher known as Celsus. Celsus was very, uh, very much opposed to Christianity. Um, Origen describes Celsus as alleging that it was by means of sorcery that he was able to accomplish the wonders which he performed, end quote. So that was Celsus's, a Greek philosopher from the third century. Uh, that was his that was his allegation against Jesus. Justin Martyr reflects the same sort of thing in his book, um, Dialogue with Trypho. He says, But though they saw such works, that is the Jewish people, they asserted it was magical art, for they dared to call him a magician and a deceiver of the people. What's interesting, though, just as an aside, is that these early, uh, this early opposition to Jesus doesn't deny that Jesus was actually performing these miracles. That's not the route they take. They don't take the route of saying, well, he didn't actually do these things. They assume he did. People saw them. There were witnesses. But they try to explain it away as dark magic, some other ways. This passage is structured, the way it's organized, you may have noticed, in a form of something like a sandwich, kind of like an Oreo cookie, right? You got the cookies on the outside and the cream filling in the middle. And this is something that Mark does throughout his book. He organizes a lot of his material in what people call a Markin sandwich, Mark's way of structuring passages by sandwiches. You get, first of all, his family, and then you get the scribes, and then it comes back again at the end to dealing with his family. You might think of it this way. Why does Mark structure the passage this way and other passages this way? If we saw Alverno putting out an advertisement that placed two pictures next to each other, a picture of a, uh, a college graduate, someone graduating from the institution, next to a picture of someone practicing nursing, and they just put those pictures next to each other with some sort of slogan, whatever Alverno's slogan is. I don't know, like moving forward or something. No idea. But like, if you don't know Alverno's uh, one of their biggest uh, departments is nursing, right? So if you put a graduate next to a picture of a, of, of a nurse, what would that communicate? The juxtaposition of those is meant to work together to convey people who graduate from our school find success getting jobs as nurses or something along those lines, right? We do this all the time. We put collages or uh, different sequences of video clips together in movies where you're meant to sort of Put it together, right? And that's what Mark is doing here. He puts these events of Jesus' family and the scribes and then the family, again, next to each other so we read it all together. And that's where we get these two parallel accusations. The same exact language is used. His family was saying and the scribes were saying. They're both, there's two things being said. First, that he's insane and secondly, that he's possessed. 
And there's other sort of things that tie this unit together. In this passage, we have the mention of two kingdoms. The kingdom that God is bringing against the kingdom of Satan, that with the demons being expelled. We have the two different types of spirits. We have the Holy Spirit, by which Jesus does his miracles, and then we have the demonic spirits that they accuse him of doing his miracles by. We have two sort of bindings, that his family comes to seize him, and yet it's actually Jesus is the one that we see who does the binding as he binds the strong man, Satan. We get mention of two houses. Jesus is at the house, and yet Jesus also talks about the house that's divided against itself cannot stand. And with the house, we also get this idea of family language, where you have two families. We have Jesus' literal biological family, and then we have the spiritual family of God. And so Mark is putting all this together, these contrasting responses to, to Jesus, those who reject Jesus, against those who actually receive Jesus. And the message then, we might state, is something like this, that how we respond to Jesus determines whether we belong to his family. How we respond to Jesus, as this story illustrates the different responses, how we respond to Jesus determines whether or not we are a part of his family. A proper response to Jesus is what determines whether one belongs to the family of God, whether one belongs to Jesus's spiritual family. And this makes sense of, of what we've seen in the surrounding context of the book so far, right? Where up until this point, we've seen Jesus, been, he's been rejected by the religious leaders as they ask him these questions in an accusatory way. Why does Jesus do this? In, in the passage that follows that Dan will preach next week, Jesus gives us a parable about the, the parable of the sower, the parable of the soils, about how different soils representing different people respond to the message of the gospel in different ways. Jesus is giving us a theological explanation for why not everyone believes, why there are these different responses to something that is good news. Why would people reject it? Well, Jesus gives us an explanation. And so here in this passage and the passage we looked at last week, we see who actually belongs then to the true people of God. Last week, in verses 13 to 19, we saw that Jesus determines who constitutes the true people of God as he reconstitutes Israel in the appointment of the twelve. So too, in our passage today, we see that how one responds to this Jesus. If, it, if Jesus is the one who constitutes the people of God, then how one responds to Jesus is what determines whether one belongs to that people. Jesus' family. And so for the remainder of our uh, time together, we're going to look at those two, uh, those two sections. Really, the idea of the fate of those who reject Jesus first, and then second, the fate of those who receive Jesus. So let's begin with the fate of those who reject Jesus as we continue in verse 23 to 26. And he, Jesus, called them, these scribes from Jerusalem, he called them to him and he said to them in parables, that is, he gave them uh, an argument in the form of these kind of images or these analogies. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself, and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. The argument here is quite simple, and it's, it's a pretty convincing. How could Jesus, like the, the explanation you give doesn't work. 
If I was casting out demons by demons, then, then the demons, the, Satan is a fighting against himself. That's civil war, and things are going to fall apart. The Bucks are in the playoffs right now. Okay, And if, if the Bucks players started arguing with each other and there started to be this disunity among the team, like that's going to greatly uh, lessen the chance of their being able to win. Like If they can't get along and work together, they're not going to win. Even within the history, the recent history of the audience here, you can even think to the Roman Empire. Many of you probably are aware of this even from our history classes in elementary school, right? Julius Caesar, for instance, was a very successful military commander whose power eventually threatened the Senate's authority. Rome was, was early, early on in Rome's empire. They were a republic, not so much an empire ruled by an emperor. But in 49 BC, the Senate ordered Caesar to disband his army, but he refused, crossing the Rubicon, and he instead marched on Rome with his army, sparking a civil war. And Caesar emerged victorious, and he made himself, he appointed himself dictator for life. But his reign was short-lived as he was eventually assassinated in the same year, March 15th, the Ides of March, by a group of senators who feared his increasing power. And then as he was killed, this eventually led to more instability. I believe it was between his nephew, uh, you had Brutus, and you had Octavius, and you had all these, there was a big uh, civil war again. So, so internal conflict was not beneficial to the empire, was not beneficial to the republic. It was, they were fighting and they were attacking themselves. And so Jesus' arguments make sense. How can I be, how can I be casting out demons by the power of demons? That would be civil, that would be Satan committing civil war against himself. And this really becomes sort of that argument that I mentioned last week, where C.S. Lewis gives that argument of what we called Lord, lunatic, and liar. That Jesus, the one thing he cannot be is merely a good teacher. Because either, as his family thought, he was a lunatic. That's one explanation. But we see by the character of Jesus that that's not a satisfying explanation. He does not come across uh, loony, right? He comes across composed. What he says makes sense. He teaches very profound things that many people have found quite uh, significant. So that one doesn't hold true. Um, or he is a liar. Maybe he's actually doing things by the power of demons, but he doesn't come across that way either. And his argument here is pretty tight. So he must then be Lord. He must actually be who he says he is. The one thing he can't be is merely a good teacher because a good teacher would not, say, would not claim the things that he claims. He would be lying and that would make him uh, telling untruths that would make him uh, untrustworthy, or he would actually be uh, thinking he's telling the truth, but he's actually not correct. He's insane. He thinks he's God and he's not. And so Lord, lunatic, and liar is really the sort of argument that Mark is presenting here. Jesus actually is who he says he is. And so Jesus provides that parable, and then in verse 27, he explains what's really going on. He says, but this, but this is actually what's going on. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. You can't come in and rob a strong man unless you first tie him up, right? You got you to gotta disarm the strong man. And then once you've disarmed him, once you've tied him up, you've subdued him, then you can do whatever you want. You can take all of his stuff. Today we might think of it this way. Uh, there's, you can find these people on YouTube. There are YouTubers who are hackers, and I realize, Kyle, I'm probably not using that term correctly, 
but hackers who go in and they will hack the hackers. People who will be trying to do scams on people, there are sort of these like Robin Hood figures who will, they're also hackers, but they go in to hack the hackers uh, and to stop them from scamming or take all the scammers' money or whatever. Now, in order to do that, oftentimes what they do is they lock down, like, like a hacker will do, they'll lock down your computer. Before they rob you, take your files, what have you, they lock you out of the computer. And that's kind of what Jesus is saying here. If I'm casting out demons, if I'm plundering Satan, I'm, I'm rescuing these people who are demon-possessed, then that shows that I actually have authority over Satan. I'm plundering Satan. I'm not casting out demons by the power of demons. I am the one who is bound. The, 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 a stronger man is here who is actually fighting Satan. And the expulsion of demons shows that the kingdom of God is at hand and is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. And so Jesus has responded to their argument. He's explained what's actually going on. And now, finally, he charges them with the sin that they are committing, which is uh, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, as he says. Look at verse 28 through 30 with me. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemies or blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. That is a sin with eternal consequences, I think is the idea there. For they were saying, Mark, Mark explains for us, they were saying that he has an unclean spirit. That is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So, so in what way were they blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Well, they were attributing what was the work of the Holy Spirit in Jesus to the work of Satan. And in that way, they are speaking against the Spirit. They are slandering the Spirit. They're looking at Jesus, what God is doing in Jesus, what the Holy Spirit is accomplishing through Jesus. You'll notice they never actually mention the Holy Spirit. Jesus assumes this. I'm delivering people from demons by the power of the Holy Spirit. So to attribute what I'm doing to Satan is really to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. It's to say that what the Holy Spirit is doing through me to expel these unclean spirits is actually done by unclean spirits. It's to call the Holy Spirit an unclean spirit, essentially. And so what is the sin, then, of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? It is to decisively reject Jesus. To decisively and utterly reject Jesus. To be able to look at Jesus, look at what God is doing in Jesus, the one who comes and is bringing the kingdom of God, the one through whom the Holy Spirit is working to bring evidence of the arrival of the kingdom, and it is then to attribute what God is doing through Jesus by the Spirit to Satan. It's to say, look at what God is doing through Jesus by the Spirit. That is actually a work of Satan. It is to utterly reject what God is doing in Jesus. In other words, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that you just commit by accident, that we need to be worried about committing on accident. Passages like this can really mess with people if you don't understand what is actually going on. It's best to just ask, what are they actually doing? They are rejecting what God is doing through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. It's not something that we commit on accident. This is a decisive and utter rejection of Jesus, not something that you just stumble into. And so if you're worried that you have committed it, uh, you haven't. Because to be worried is to show a sensitivity. It doesn't mean you're saved necessarily. It doesn't mean that you have a right response to Jesus. But this is evidence of someone who has utterly, decisively, knowingly rejected Jesus. 
And amidst this maybe this scary warning, there is this incredible statement nonetheless. He warns that those who utterly reject him, and by extension what the Spirit is doing in him, are guilty of an eternal sin, a sin that will not be forgiven. But notice what he says in verse 28. Truly I say to you, he begins this way, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man. This is the exception to to utterly reject Jesus. But the amazing truth that we don't expect, we, we should not expect that any sins would be forgiven. We don't deserve that. That's not owed to us. And yet, even in the midst of this warning, we get this amazing promise that all sins are to be forgiven. That's incredible. The reason the unforgivable sin is unforgivable, you might think of it this way, or the reason that it's eternal is this way. It's like a person who has a deadly disease. Maybe they have like some sort of terminal cancer, but there is something that can cure it. There's something that if they take advantage of this, if they go to the source, they can be cured. And yet, they reject the cure. And in that sense, their disease is now incurable. It is a self-inflicted. It is to, 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 to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, to reject Jesus, is to, com- is to reject the one source, the one hope of forgiveness. And in that sense, that is the one sin that is unforgivable, to refuse the forgiveness that is in Jesus, that God is accomplishing for us in Jesus and makes available to us in Jesus. And so, it goes out as a warning to anyone here today who is not trusting and looking to Christ for salvation. It goes out as a warning to anyone who is rejecting Jesus that to reject Jesus is to refuse the one place where forgiveness can be found. And so in contrast, we see those who receive Jesus. In verse 31 to 35, his mother and his brothers came. They've arrived finally. And they're standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called for Jesus. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you, Jesus. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of God is Jesus's true family, he says. Now, this is quite shocking. Culturally, even today, families are very important. But back then, especially, families were very much the building block of society. Um, text group was talking today and the illustration was thrown out. It would be like if, if Thanksgiving rolls around and normally people, what do they do for Thanksgiving? They go, most people at least, they go and they spend Thanksgiving with their family. But if, if you were to say to your biological family or your family of origin, well, hey, we're not actually going to be spending Thanksgiving with you because we're going to be spending it with our real family. They would be like, what are you talking about? We are your real family, right? You're like, no, no, no. I'm going to be spending it with the people of God in my church in Milwaukee. That's my real family. That it's very, that's a stark statement, right? And that's what Jesus is saying, is that he is prioritizing this new family, the, the spiritual family, over these mere natural ties, the biological family. 
And who are the people who make up this family? It is those who do the will of God, he says. In context, I think that what, what that means primarily is those who are, as we saw, at Jesus' feet. It's those who have responded to Jesus in contrast with the scribes, in contrast with this family who thinks he's insane. It's those who have responded properly to the arrival of the kingdom. Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. It's those who have done that, and they are at Jesus' feet. They're at the king's feet. And so the implications of this teaching are profound. First of all, this means that belonging to God's people, belonging to God's family, being a child of God is not some automatic thing or some assumed thing. Sometimes people can talk that way. We talk that way in society. We're, we're all children of God. Everyone is universally a child of God. And in one sense, it's true in the sense that God has created all of us. We're all made in his image. But in the sense that uh, his, his saved people, his redeemed people, no. In fact, what are we all by nature? We're actually children of wrath. We're children who are under his wrath. That's our, that's our natural state, our natural status. In our sin, we are the objects of God's holy wrath. And so belonging to God's family is not something that we should merely assume. It's not something that we're born into naturally. We are what? Reborn into this family. The other thing is that this means that social proximity to Jesus does not make one automatically a part of Jesus's family. That is, Simply having Christian parents, for instance. So if you're, if it, well, for all of us, but especially for those here who are maybe some of our younger people, and your parents are members of this church, just because your parents are believers, or just because you attend religious functions, that does not automatically make you a part of God's family. It's not some natural thing that we're born into or that you're automatically done by some ritual, like religious ritual rite, that you're just automatically assumed to be a part of the family of God, you must be born again into this family. You must properly respond to Jesus. It's those who do the will of God that are, are he says are his family. Not even Jesus' own family automatically made them a part of his true family. How much, how much more so for us? The amazing thing, though, is that Jesus does make us his family. We, let's not take this for granted when Jesus says that we are his family, those who respond to Jesus, that we're sinners. By nature, we are children of wrath. We ought not to be his family. We don't deserve to be his family. But elsewhere in Scripture, we get this portrait of Jesus as the firstborn, Jesus as the elder brother of the family of God. In Hebrews 2, it talks about how Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters, and, and because the children share in flesh and blood, he too took on flesh and blood so that in human nature, he would bear human sin, he would absorb human death so that we can then be made children of God. He wins the inheritance. As Galatians says, he frees us from slavery. He, he takes us as slaves and he transfers us to those who are adopted. And he does this through his death, paying the curse for us and giving us the spirit of adoption. He wins the inheritance as the firstborn child, the rightful heir of the inheritance through his death and resurrection. And now all those are his family. He shares, he lavishes that inheritance that he won. He lavishes it with us. As, as Romans 8 says that we are being conformed into the image of Christ so that 
we, he might be the firstborn among many brothers. We are those many brothers and sisters. And Jesus has made us. We are not naturally a part of Jesus' family. We are sinners, but he has made us a part of his family through his death and resurrection on our behalf for all those who look to him for salvation and respond properly to what God is doing in him by trusting in Christ. And this can provide us great comfort that for some of us, maybe your earthly family, is, you're not close to them, or maybe they don't follow Jesus. Maybe you feel like you don't have a family, or you do have a family, but there's, there's quite a difference between how you view the world, how you view life, because they're not believers, or they're not mature believers. And, and so there's this, the way you view your family, it's not this amazing resource that you have. Jesus says that the church is your eternal family. You have a family in the church, and this is what we see across the New Testament, where we get this familial language used, where oftentimes the letters, when the apostles write letters, they open by saying brothers and sisters, that we, we, we treat each other as a family, we view each other as a family, an eternal family, a family that's even more literal, more, more thick, more solid, as C.S. Lewis might say, more solid than any of the families in this world. It's also an exhortation to us to then be that family to one another, to bear each other's burdens, to be involved in each other's life, to be more than just a gathering on a Sunday, but an actually family that knows each other and cares for one another, that is there to support each other and be there for each other in the, the good times and the bad. It's also a challenge to us that what it means to be a part of the family, Jesus says here, is, is to be one of those who does the will of God. As we said, it means responding properly to Jesus, but to respond properly to Jesus entails following Jesus. It entails someone who is doing the will of God, someone who lives a life that is seated at Jesus' feet and is listening to him, that's heeding from him, that's, do, that's being taught everything that he commands, as his Great Commission says. A disciple who's baptized and is being taught everything Jesus commands, who follows him, who can be described as they do the will of God. And is that a description of your life? Is that a description of Crossway where people would be able to look and say, yeah, this is Jesus' family. And how do, how do they know that, this is, this is, that we, Crossway, is a part of Jesus' family? Because that's a people who does the will of God. That's a people who actually follows Jesus. And so again, this passage teaches us that how we respond to Jesus determines whether we belong to Jesus' family. A proper response to Jesus, repentance and faith, is what makes you a part of Jesus' family. Those who reject him are condemned. We see that in its most serious form here in the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unforgivable sin. But those who receive Jesus, he declares them his family. And so we can close by reflecting on that question for ourselves. What is my response to Jesus? Am I someone who rejects Jesus, who stiff arms him, who, de who denies who Jesus actually claims to be? Maybe I don't do that. Maybe I'm not so negative to Jesus. I'm not like Friedrich Nietzsche, but I I'm more kind of indifferent to Jesus. Like, yeah, he's okay, but eh. Or am I someone who is actually seated at the feet of Jesus, following him, doing the will of God, fully devoted to this Jesus who came as Lord? And we can be assured, believer, that if we are those who, are respond, who have properly responded to
to Jesus by putting our trust in him, by seeking to follow him. He indeed calls us his family. That no matter what else anyone says of us, no matter what else is said of us, whether that's said by others, whether that's something that our own heart says about us, the most important, the most important voice is Christ's and what he says. He calls us his family. He calls us brother, sister, and mother. No matter the circumstances in our life, Jesus calls us his family. Many of us are looking for acceptance. Jesus says, you are my family. He answers that need. And and knowing that we're Jesus' family, we are liberated then to serve. We're no longer enslaved to fear, but we're liberated to serve out of the confidence that we know that we are Jesus' family. I mean, what would it look like if we lived, if we walked through our life knowing that Jesus calls me his brother or his sister? What a comfort that can give to us, no matter what we're going through that week, no matter what difficulty we're facing. It gives us the confidence and, and, and the, the energy to persevere when things are difficult. I know that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, calls me his family. And I think it spurs us on to mission as well as we seek to see other people brought into the family. What, a, what an amazing treasure we have in Christ to be a part of his family and to be able to invite other people to freely join that family. One of the things we do to remind ourselves of this reality is to celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday. One of the things that families do at least traditionally and typically, is they share meals together, right? It's, a, it's kind of a common staple as families get together and they share a meal maybe in the evenings. To be included at that table day in and day out signifies that those who are around the table are family. The meal is in some ways an expression of what the family is. It's kind of the quintessential picture of the family. And so too, the Lord's Supper is our family meal. It makes visible who belongs to the family. The bread and the cup depict Jesus' body and blood as he he gave them for us in his death, as he offered himself as the very sacrifice for our sins, so that those who partake of these elements, it is God's way of saying that Jesus' death applies for you. But it's not just an individual meal. That's why historically churches have have spoken of it as a table. There's a, there's a sense of it. It's, this isn't like an individual dispensary. Uh, like, what do you call those things where you put your money and you get your little snack or whatever? Uh, it's, it's not one of those, right? You're not just going up and getting your little individual communion thing all by yourself, but there's a reason we're doing this together and we talk about it as coming to the table because it's a family meal.